So let's talk about four skills tonight. Hey, did you enjoy Malcolm Smith? Your mind has exploded. Um, Malcolm is that hidden man that apparently, you know, God sent him out to West Texas for the last, pretty much the last 20 years. And now uh, he's, at, he's actually just about to turn 81. So he literally is being loosed at 80 uh, back into a wider ministry. And uh, it was my hope that him being with us would launch him um, once again out there. And he's, he's excited. He is so excited. Um, all right, tonight, let's talk about four skills that separate leaders and that anyone can develop. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff you're just born with. And if there's anything that people are upset about these days, it's the lack of equality. And equality, 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 equality is just being, being uh, ballyhooed every day, everywhere. But the truth is, uh, you're born without equality. What do I mean? Well, how many of you can sing like what you just heard? Nobody can, make, nobody can make that happen for you. Some of you can, but nobody can make that happen for you. You can't, you can't, by thinking about it, grow taller. You can't. There's some inequalities that are intrinsic. In the same way, in terms of gifting and calling, there's some inequalities in the kingdom. They're just there. And I'll actually touch that. But there's, um, but, but, for many of us, we can develop skills. So Malcolm, what he did was he talked to us about our equality in Christ in terms of intrinsic worth, intrinsic value, union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and if you're not careful, if you turn it into a heresy, you'll turn it into something that says, uh, well, I'm just one with Christ and, and I, don't, I don't have to, like no effort is required, no decision is required. Eh, wrong. So the leadership school is to talk to, to say to you uh, who you are gives a basis upon which you can build what you're to be about in your life. And that's what we're talking about with these four skills. So what are these four skills? They are these attitude skills. And for the believer, that means putting on the mind of Christ, which by the way, you have it by gift, but you utilize it by choice. You have it by the appropriation of him living in you, but you exercise it by, by volitional engagement and, and, and participation in him. Relational skills. Anybody can grow in relational skills. This is, uh, whew. This is the one we can talk about week after week after week after week after week after week. But it's basically wrapped up in the one another's in the, in the text. And then we'll just, we'll, we'll talk about some ways you can, you can grow relationally. And then conflict skills. Dum, da, dum, dum. Lots of people say they don't like conflict. Very few people say they do like conflict. The people who do like conflict are unliked by the rest of us. <laughs> and and uh, uh, for most of us, we're afraid and, and, and not having skills to do conflict. 
It means most, most families are run by fear instead of any kind of interactual skills. And, and, and we got we to break the cycle. Communication skills, learning how to tell the truth in love. So that's what we're up to tonight. We're going to go at this. We'll have some scripture. We'll have some, some, uh, some uh, things that are derived from scripture. But let's start here. Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now look. He's urging us to do those things. Those are participatory, volitional things that we can do. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called uh, to the one hope that belongs to your, to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's that union text that we tend to overlook. But the grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All right, so everyone is gifted, but it's in measure. And then he talks about this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he gives us this wonderful saying. This is is the... uh, This is the passage that deals, well, let's look at it. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also had descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one that also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I'm not going to get bogged in the theology of what that means, incarnation and or um, what happened in the tomb. I won't do that tonight. Go in here. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I have been on a crusade about this passage for a very long time. I haven't taught it publicly as much as I do privately and and in small groups. Um, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. A lot of times this is is called in in our circles fivefold ministry. Um, And there's all kinds of, I think, mistakes made about fivefold ministry. Number number one, not all people are fivefold ministers. I'm sorry, it's just true. There's where that hierarchical thing comes in. There, there are, but, these, but, but I think that these fivefold ministers are people that are given to the church and they have a function. So Malcolm was with us and Malcolm operated in the function of teacher like nobody we've ever had. We've had pastor, teacher. We've had a pastor. We've had apostles and prophets. Um, we've had evangelists. I would tell you who I think is an evangelist, but he'd he'd probably argue with me, so I won't do it. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter that much. But that word to equip, say to to equip. All right. When I was playing football, which was a long time ago, you went to the equipment manager. 
And the equipment manager equipped you. That is to say, he gave you all the pads and helmets and everything you needed. He gave you the stuff to make you um, into a living missile. <laughs> back, in, back in my day, I was, was so funny. Don't do it, Alan. You're about to segue. Don't do it. Anyway, that equipment manager was, was preparing me with the external equipment that I needed. Then I would go out to practice in this external equipment, and I would be coached by coaches who would give me the, the other kind of equipping I needed to do the task. Now, this word is not talking about the equipment manager, despite the fact that the book of Ephesians has a, a, a thing about spiritual armor. That's not what's being talked about here. In fact, this word is a very specific word. And since Malcolm was here dealing with words, I'll just dive into one. This word in its original context, in its original Greek meaning, at its core meaning, meant you, to mend a net or, or, if you will, to set a bone. So the way that word was used is like a doctor comes to somebody, they, they've got the, that compound fracture. You have to set that bone. So when it grows back together, you will be mended. The fisherman's net is his livelihood. There were people who had the skill to mend a net. That meant to get that net in its original intended shape. They didn't throw away a torn net. They mended it. Another way of saying these things is to restore it. Okay, and I like this word restoration. I'll come to this same word later. I'll show you later in a text where this word is used. This is the idea that the function of the apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral, and didactic or teaching ministries is to restore the saints for the work of the ministry. So catch this, those fivefold people are not doing the ministry they're preparing the people to do the ministry. That means you got to develop some mad skills. That means you need wholeness. So this, this whole lesson tonight is about developing the kind of wholeness that allows you to function in kingdom ministry in a way where, where you are able to be who God called you to be. Okay? Well, there's many type of ministries, but um, let, let me just say the whole one another ministry. Everything you do in the body of Christ to, for one another is turned into ministry. And every kind of mercy thing act that you give is a kind of ministry. And every kind of, uh, like the, the, the teachers aren't the only teachers. They'll equip you to be teachers. You might not be a teacher in the sense of a fivefold minister, but you're a teacher in the sense that you're, you're making disciples as you go. So 
actually, every one of the fivefold and the things that are represented in there, people can be equipped to participate in those ministries. You can, you can participate in those ministries without necessarily being the person who um, functions in the, at this level. Um, and by the way, I don't believe in fivefold government. I don't, I don't think that the way to arrange the church, I mean, if, if that's how it is, we're, listen, it's not very well uh, outlined for us in scripture and it's not very well modeled anywhere and nobody knows how to do it. So the, for, so the way for this to go is, is that me or you? Somebody is dinging. We got dingy people here tonight. Um, which very well could be my computer. All right, next time it happens, it's your fault. All right, Um, I'm gonna go on. So let's talk about some attitude skills. Attitude skills. This is is perhaps the easiest skill to, to develop because anyone can change their attitude. You can easily do it. This is learning to rule your own spirit in a way that allows you to rule your reactions. There was some stuff that in my, in my youth that made me uh, an excessively negative person. And it made me, when I got saved, I developed a kind of a theology that was called remnant theology, or it was the belief that there's very few that would be saved, which I don't hold that to being true at all anymore. Far, far from it. And uh, I had an encounter that caused me to rethink my attitude. And then it actually, it did something that changed my mind for the rest of my life. I went to Haiti. I went to Haiti. When I was on the the island nation of Haiti, I actually suffered one of the most disappointing days of my life. I found out while I was there that I had been rejected for missionary service based on some things that were, some judgments that were made about my life that A, I didn't agree with and B, that hurt me pretty bad. But, but man, so I got, I got really banged, really, really bruised up. But something else happened to me while I was there. For the first time in my life, I encountered a form of poverty on a, on a level that I couldn't do anything about. And I realized that I was calling people to make a commitment to Christ that probably exceeded my own. And something happened to me when I was there. I decided when I was there that my my negative and dour outlook on life really had no foundation. And I began the process of changing my mind, which is a process I'm still in, Changing your mind is the easiest thing you can do and adopting an attitude of gratitude is a foundational function of changing your life. I've had a number of these encounters and uh, listen, still in process, but I do remember cognitively choosing to say, instead of having such a, a bad attitude about the world, instead of having such a bad attitude about uh, myself, instead of having such a bad attitude about 
the, the shape of the kingdom. I thought I could change it. That process got furthered one day, and I have told you about this. I'll never forget. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I had a pastor that was, um, I think I might have even used this recently, but it, let me bear with me a little bit. Um, I had a pastor that when he preached, man, he preached in an elevated way. And I used to be kind of fussed about that because I was like, man, you know, get your sword out, dude, and hack around a little bit. So I was still struggling with that thing, right? And I remember going to this single lady's house to visit her, who visited our church and having a nice little chat with her and her saying, I'd love to come there because I feel so good when I leave. And I remembered thinking, well, that's not okay. You're supposed to come to church and repent. You're supposed to come to church and figure out what's wrong with you and, and uh, hate yourself some more. <laughs> but I remembered being the one who left there that day and repented and said, oh, no, no, she's right. And now I know, listen, if you're a preacher of good news, a good news you're a preacher of good news, gospel, good news. Everywhere you go, you're good newsing people. Guess what? He's my glory and the lifter of my head. So learning to rule your spirit in a way that rules uh, your reactions will help you, which is to say, what happens to me doesn't determine what happens in me. This is choosing how to think instead of instead of reacting to how you feel. And this is learning to dial down on the inside when things flare up on the outside. So this is a measure of self-control in your spirit and choosing how you're going to be to the outside world. Um, you, there's many things you can't control what happens to you, but you can always control what comes from you and what happens, uh, what, what, what your reaction is to it. You can't, if you've been harmed, you, you really lots of times don't have control of that. You have control how you react to it. And you are responsible for how you react to it. And so attitude, 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 attitude. And boy, the one, the one attitude that I would like to see go away the most is the victim attitude. Especially for people who are described as overcomers, conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself up for us. And everywhere you go in the ancient world, everywhere you read, there's suffering, incredible suffering. And Paul's talking about the suffering, but always He's calling for the joy. So there's some, some volitional stuff. So attitude skills, we're going to hit it a little bit more. So the attitude of Christ, this is the big passage. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or Vainglory, the King James says, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he gives this incredible Christological passage. And if you don't know anything in the Bible but this passage, you can live the rest of your life off this text. Many believe it was uh, an, uh, an early song that either Paul adopted or wrote himself. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you know, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a, the Philippian passage also goes on to tell us that, um, tell us how to adopt an attitude. So I'll press that one more time. Um, one of the biochemical realities of my life is how prone I am to, to depression. And a bunch of you are the, are the same way. And a lot of us here, when we started learning that there was uh, some sort of chemical component of us, we used to say, we have chemical depression. Because what we were trying to say to everybody is, it's not really my fault. It's just what I got stuck with by birth. And guess what? I began to learn that even if you're born with certain dispositions, you don't have to adopt the attitude that's that's coherent with that disposition. You can do some things to change it. And I'm finding out that, guess what? You can actually affect your biochemistry by the, by the attitude you choose. Can you be healed of it? I don't have enough knowledge to know that. You can be healed by God. You can be healed. You can sometimes be helped by medicine. You can be healed by all kinds of means. But I'll guarantee you, you can make your life a lot worse or you can make your life a lot better. And so I began to go to that other passage in Philippians about whatsoever things are good and lovely and beautiful and honorable and have a good report and think on those things. I, I became very, very good at not thinking about things that depress me. I became, I, I adopted the, 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 what's the principle of, uh, is it gone with the wind? I'm not gonna think about that. I'll think about that tomorrow. After all, tomorrow is another day. <laughs> and I began to learn that I could get some stuff out of my head. All right? So what do you do about your, your attitude? First of all, everybody needs to get some teachers. Everybody needs teachers. Every person needs teachers. We live in a wonderful day because you can just get teachers everywhere. Why do you need teachers? Because you need wise voices in your head because the world is full of death, dour, destructive voices, political, angry, partisan voices, uh, victimized, depressive voices. So get some teachers. That's one. Number two, get some relationships. Get some relationships. Loneliness has a necessity to it, but it's also soul killing. Your, your attitude sags if you're cut off from the herd. You can't be cut off from the herd. You, will, you, you gotta have some people to tell you what you don't see and speak into you what you don't hear. I recently went through a period of time where I got, I got, I started getting depressed in a way that I hadn't been depressed in a long time. I've told you all about it. And I got friends. Listen, they all, they prophesied over me. Some of them, they, by the way, a lot of my friends prophesied opposite stuff, but all of them prophesied good stuff over me. 
which was basically, if you decide to just walk away, God will bless you. And if you decide to go go on, God will bless you. And I'm like, in other words, God's going to bless me. That's what I took from all that. He's with me. The Lord is with me. And I I took the encouragement from it. Um, If I isolate myself, when when bad thoughts come, I'm in bad shape. Because if I'm my only counselor, he who is his only counselor has a fool for a client. Get some understanding. Lack of perspective destroys us. All I told you about, by the way, when I told you about going to Haiti was I went to Haiti and got a different perspective. Just recently when I was getting down about things and when I was getting upset, I sort of encouraged myself by just choosing a new perspective. I looked at my wife one day and said, you know, it ain't that bad. We're not doing that bad. We got a few things against us. We got a few things that are getting us down. We got a few things that have not gone the way we wanted them to go. But guess what? This is what we have. We start enumerating the stuff, and the new perspective gives an understanding, and the understanding gives the attitudinal shift. I'm telling you, more people are destroying this world by getting an attitude that's self-destructive than just about anything else. The reason that psychology has exploded in our culture is because we have become so self-destructive in our minds. We got to stop it. And then get some training. Training is where you learn skills in life. Because you know what? Because nothing is more destructive to us than than the feeling like a failure. And, and failure is one of the strongest narratives that, that rules us and controls us. And the truth is, everybody fails. Everybody fails. The stories about failure are everywhere. And every successful person has been a colossal failure. And I love all the stories of all the really filthy, rich people who went broke 14 times. <laughs> and half of them are just waiting for the next time. And inventors who, who failed at 300 attempts, what is it, what is it, uh, the, the failures to create the light bulb, how many times? No, I remember somebody that knew how many times that had failed before it succeeded. And um, every great athlete is only measured by um, their, their level of, their, they, they fail less than everybody else around them. But get some training, because a little bit of training, uh, like... These things, and they make me insane. And you know, you get born again and saved and changed and, and you get rid of cussing and then somebody puts a computer in your hand and you, you're like, you learn an old skill. But all that has to happen is somebody show you some stuff about how to do it and all of a sudden you're going, ooh, look what I'm doing. Ooh, look what I did. And little successes make you feel so good. Get some training. And then get some healing. Just get some healing. Get some healing. Listen, the fivefold ministers are healers. If Malcolm came in here and taught you some stuff about your oneness with Christ, if, if, if it did the right thing in you, it healed you in such a way to know about your relationship with God in such an expanded way that you'd never considered it before, that it put such a healing in you that you, you, you changed your narrative about your relationship with God. 
I mean, he came in here and, and, and where so many, much preaching has put the narrative in our lives that God is angry and against us. And then you get the witness of scripture that says, well, he did unite himself to you. And uh, I remember, I think the person that damaged me the most is the one that used a, a verse of scripture to infer that God won't, that if you have any sin at all, that God won't have fellowship with you. And then it turned all my prayer into trying to feel better about the fact that I was an awful sinner and maybe God would like me. And I remember when I finally turned that verse another way and my prayers became like the prayers of a son instead of like the prayers of an orphan. And my life in Jesus became a celebration of him rather than agony. All right, so that's just a little bit about attitude. Attitude is changeable. Choose to change your attitude. Choose tonight. Choose tonight. By the way, here, let's, let's just check an attitude because theology teaches us stuff. Try to be real honest when I give this question. How many of you, if you're just, your first impression, if I ask the question, is the world getting worse, will say yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Is it? Is it? Let me just, let me ask another, let me ask the question another way. How many of you want the kind of life your grandparents had? <laughs> you want the health care your grandparents had? You want, you want the technology your grandparents had? You want, okay, so there's some, so here's the truth. Some stuff's getting better, some stuff's getting worse. But if you, but what happened was our, our eschatology the eschatology that was so popular throughout the last part of the last century taught us all to believe the world is getting worse all the time. When the truth is, some things might be getting worse and some things are definitely getting better. And if you, by the way, if you want to do some secular reading on that, read a guy named Steven Pinker. You'll find out that the, the rate of poverty in the world in, in a 10-year span that just passed got cut in half. The rate of abject poverty in the world. And so you can go through all kinds of things about what's happening to diseases, what's happening with clean water, what's happening with basic sanitation and health care. And there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Now, if you, if you listen to teenagers about the climate, you're going to... By the way, I couldn't help but notice... I couldn't help but notice everybody was placing forward this, this teenage girl from Scandinavia. And did you notice what she did? She taught us like a 1950s preacher. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You're destroying everything. I was, I, I, listen, I'm constantly intrigued by how, by how the, the new religion... How religion is shifting into the secular realm and, and how the new fundamentalist is shifting into the secular realm. I'm kind of encouraged about it because it means people will get pretty sick of it after a while. <laughs> Always get in trouble when I tread on those things. All right, so 
Get healing. Now, that leads me naturally to this. Healing is required to advance relationships. And the next skill I want to talk about is relationship skills. Relationship skills. By the way, okay, let's be careful here. Don't answer this question with hands raised, okay? Just feel it. Just feel it. Don't, don't respond, just feel it. How many of you wish your parents had better relationship skills? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> Listen, it, 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 it was one of, the, one of the healing things for me was when I realized that my father gave me what he had to give. But it made me go, okay, that's the floor. Build on that. Build on that. Don't, don't rinse, wash, and repeat. <laughs> Build on that. Become a person who has something more to give. And that's where the law of one another comes in. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Well, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not constantly, constantly consumed by one another. The law of one another. Um, by the way, I went ahead and put this passage, this in there. Brothers, if any of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I went on with this passage because it says bear one another's burdens and, and uh, it goes on with some, some of the one another stuff. But I also have this passage because the word restore right there is the same word as the word equip in the, in the Ephesians passage. Now this is important too. Because a lot of people on restoration do an external job just like the equipment manager does an external job. And by that I mean, here's what we do. We, we get somebody who's committed a terrible sin. We get them to say, I'm sorry, which is external. We get them to amend their behavior and go to, uh, go to probation purgatory for a period of time so we can watch them and judge them. <laughs> and, we, and, we keep them, and we keep them at arm's length for a long time. But no, what this passage is saying is, heal them. This restore is mend them, which is to say, what's the broken spot? What's the broken place inside of you? Get that thing healed so you won't do it again. We got a minister out there that I, every time I look up, there's, Massive stuff on the web about this person being restored again because it just keeps repeating the thing because the thing never gets healed. So on this, let me recommend to you, Danny Silk's new book is out. I think we have about 20 copies left in the church office that'll be out there uh, this weekend. Um, but Danny does a thing on rest. What he does on restoration is, is mind-blowing. And um, he took a real chance because he uses illustrations of people that, whose names he actually names, and I actually know these people. And they're in various stages of being all right. But he had permission to use them. 
um, why, do, why do you have permission? A lot of times if somebody's not ashamed anymore, they'll give you permission to use their name. Um, we don't confess our sins in the church because we still are ashamed of the sins that, you, you know somebody's really not, not ashamed anymore when they just say openly what a mess they are. This is why people go to places like uh, uh, addiction anonymous groups where people can just openly say what's going on with them. It's one of the paths to getting better. But we need people to get well, and it's an inside job. So once again, uh, this, word, this word equip, this word restore, it's the word that means to mend or to, um, or to heal, or to, it's a different kind of healing. Or um, I, I, like, I actually like the word restore. I think it's probably the best word, relationship skills. All right, why do we need them? Got to have healthy relationships to build teams. 100% biggest problem in church life is, is relational. Go on the mission field. Biggest problem on the, on the mission field is relational. Go to your house and close the door and the biggest problem is? But wait a minute, you didn't confess. <laughs> Wherever human beings, the, the biggest problems are relational. But healthy relationships, what do they require? Trust. Trust. I spent a year in a a group with pastors, and the whole subject of the whole year was about trust and how to build trust. And then you realize, well, we're not very good at it. Once again, we usually build trust by putting people on probation for a period of time until until we can trust them again. But no, 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 you build trust by trusting someone. The pressure comes on when you say, I'm trusting you, not because you've accomplished it, but I'm choosing it. Learn how to, learn how to raise your children with trust. Learn how to raise your children trusting them. Healthy relationships are forged from conflict and they do take time. So that means if you, if you haven't got it, you can still get it. Honestly, those are just opening comments. That's not really exhortation about it. So this is what I want to get to. Let's go to the health principle. You can see I monkeyed around with some acrostics because after all, in my roots, I am Baptist and I hardly ever preach um, cute little sermons like that, but once in a while I'll teach and do this. So how do you, how do you, um, how do you build relationships? Okay. Hardest skill for me, I put it first. Other people want to be heard. And so I've, one of the things I've done to myself to force me into this, do two things. Number one, when you're hanging out with somebody, try to get rid of this thing. Just get rid of it. Number two, ask other people questions about themselves. The surest way of, 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 of bonding with somebody is to ask them questions about themselves. You fall in love with somebody who, who tells you everything. What do we do to rekindle the love? Start over. 
Others want to be heard. When you get, when your relationship breaks down, you shut that other person up. You shut them up. They want to be heard. Ask questions. And, and, and don't have the answer to the questions you're asking them about them. Just don't have it. You don't have it. Ask them questions. Discover stuff about them. Um, this, is, this, is how you get, this is how you get relationally healthy. Others want to be encouraged. Uh, how many, I don't know how many it is, but it takes like seven, like seven words of affirmation to cancel out one word of criticism. And I tell people all the time, people who use the People who use the sandwich method of communicating, you know, somebody comes in, you tell them something good, you tell them something bad, then you tell them something good. Just so you know, it doesn't take but one or two experiences like that, that every time you say something good to somebody, they flinch. <laughs> You're gonna hit them with a stick. No, how do you, so how do you handle that? Just, just bring somebody in, say, I got, I got a bone to pick with you. Can I pick, and just deal with that, deal with it separately. And then lavish on the, the, the praise. But people want to be encouraged. Everybody wants to be encouraged. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. Do you know, I still remember, I've told you about my football coach. I didn't tell you this story. Friday night, Morton football game. Running back got injured. Second string running back got injured. It came down to me. It put me in at running back. I was a defensive end. Yeah. So for the Morton game, I played running back and defensive end. And late in the game, for the first time in my life, after or first time in my senior year, not my life, but first time in my senior year, I got pulled off the field. And it's late in the game, you know, and I'm mad. What do you mean taking me off the field? And I thought, coach is going to tear me up. And man, that man said to me, he says, Hawkins, I can still feel it. <laughs> he says, Hawkins, son, that's the best game you ever played. Woo! I didn't want to go back in the game. I couldn't function. <laughs> that's the first time that I remembered him praising me. And listen to me. That was the last game he ever coached. He had a heart attack that night, never coached another game. Are you kidding me? And then he became my lifelong friend. People want to be encouraged. You want some relationship skills? Encouragers have friends. People, people look for people to say good stuff about them. They duck the rest of us. People want to be appreciated. Say thank you. Say thank you, say thank you, say it too much. You can't, you can't say it too much. My wife taught me this one. <laughs> you know, you marry somebody and then they're supposed to do stuff for you. <laughs> right? Isn't that how that works? No, uh, wait a minute, I married you. You're supposed to do this stuff for me. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and my wife would go, what do you, I would be, listen, I would go to, I would go, out and all day, you know, working, working man, working man. 
It's wonderful to be the working man, come home, the preschoolers around, and you get that, you get that dog pile mobbing by the kids all at once. They come grab you, and, and uh, then you come on in, and then all of a sudden your wife says, notice anything? <laughs> I'm like, everything seems all right to me. She's teaching me to appreciate what she did on her day. Which is a lot. A lot. People want to be liked. Let me tell you about Christianity. Christianity provides a wonderful shield for us to find a Christian way to really not like a lot of people. And so we say, oh, I love them. We just don't like them at all. We just love everybody, but we don't like them at all. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the foundation of love is like. <laughs> and I'm telling you, if, any, if nobody's ever told you, you want to get shocked, you have somebody say, do you know God likes you? I mean, he loves me. He has to because that cross thing. (laughs) No, no, no. This is a relational skill. Liking. People want to be trusted. They want to be trusted. Even people who are untrustworthy want to be trusted. And one of the most powerful ways... To convert untrustworthy people is to trust them anyway. That doesn't mean you don't use use accountability or or call them out. It's a powerful thing when somebody fails you and you say, okay, you'll get it better next time. You're waiting to be punished and you don't do it. And others want to be healed. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I stole the word healing because what I really wanted to use was the word forgiveness, but it didn't spell health. So it's a, so people want to be forgiven. It's the essence of our gospel. What do you got for me? I didn't hear you. What, what did I say was the foundational truth? Oh, 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 oh. Read your own notes, Hal. <laughs> um, learn the foundational. It's a foundational truth of relationships. It's one of the foundational truths of a relationship. You don't have a relationship if you don't trust somebody. And so you express trust. You actually let them know that you trust them. Sometimes as a pastor, I'll know somebody's been hurt and, and hurt in church because you get hurt in church a lot. It's a good place to get hurt. And one of the things that I promise everybody when they come to this church, if you stay here long enough, we're going to hurt you. We promise. <laughs> but sometimes I'll ask people, why did you, why did you trust me? Because I want to know what's going on inside of them. Because before you can move forward in a relationship, there has to be some level of trust. I think that's what I was getting at. All right. 
I'm not going to make it. So forgiveness is necessary to resolve conflicts. And so the next piece of truth is conflict skills. Conflict skills. I'm a latecomer to the party of to this party, for really for most, most of my ministry. I'm like uh, most people. I was conflict averse forever and forever and forever. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten less conflict averse because listen, the more averse you are to conflict resolution, the more you get to live with conflict. And I want you to know a conflict atmosphere is worse than conflict resolution and it's worse than facing the conflict and it's worse than going through the pain of dealing with conflict resolution. Because almost always what, you're, what you avoid can be ameliorated by, can, by facing it. Conflicts are the most inevitable reality of relationships. You don't have a relationship until you've had a conflict. So every young couple that ever comes around to see me, I say, have y'all had a fight yet? And they'll say no. And I'll say, well, I probably can't do your wedding. Because if you hadn't had a fight, you don't even know if you like each other, much less love each other. Because, because uh, sometimes uh, when I think of the differences in myself and Gail, I'm like, I don't even know how this thing works at all. Because almost in every measurement of, of, of good things in life, I'm looking up at her, man. I'm telling you, I'm just looking up at her and I'm like, I don't know how she hangs around with, with me on this stuff. Um, but she doesn't sow conflict into all that. She doesn't sow conflict into every um, gap there is between us. But when I married her, she, she's been the, the, the best help because she was not conflict averse. She knew how she wanted to be treated and she would confront me until I treated her the way she wanted to be treated and, and she would not tolerate me. Are you, have you got a good dose of this? <laughs> oh man, she, she, she was training me like all the time. And then, and then I started practicing some of that myself and I would, ooh, it, I can get away with it. Uh, conflicts are inevitable. Conflicts are the most common reason for disconnection. This is why we're conflict averse. It's also, uh, a p conflict aversion is actually disconnection. When you're averse to conflict resolution, you have disconnected. And you have tolerated a level of distance. And, you know, um, so... Conflicts are the most predictable result of fear. We are afraid of something, or we're afraid of that person, or we're afraid of being without that person, but we're afraid of something. And um, these are, and as leaders in, in ministries or leaders in anything, the most precarious path you're on is conflict. Uh, I'm be honest with you. When I was uh, when I was in. Um, my early, earliest pastorates, I, I learned to believe that conflict was, was the guarantee of the end of a relationship. Because somehow we put agreement on such a level of such a place that, that unless you had perfect agreement all the time, you couldn't, you couldn't hang out together. 
And because I saw so many people check out of the relationship because of conflict. I don't have time to take more questions. I saw so many people check out of relationships because of conflict. And man, so conflicts is, is, is real precarious. And, and, uh, and, and we learn, we really do learn that people are going to leave us when they're in conflict with us. And so we do everything we can. I, literally, I can remember being afraid of letters in the mail, being afraid of phone calls, being afraid of people who wanted appointments because it usually meant we were gonna have a conflict and the end of that conflict was gonna be, I'm leaving you. And I still have those reactions in me. You, you know them, don't you? This is a powerful thing. So you gotta learn some conflict skills. So let's go to the people principle. <laughs> Conflicts resolve when we refuse issues in favor, uh, in favor of that person. I should have said of that person. When we refuse issues in favor of that person, that means they resolve when we choose the person over the, over the issue. And so listen, I go to, when I go to see somebody, I'm like, I'm here to solve a problem. If, if there's a conflict, uh, I, I probably initiate as many conflicts as are initiated with me now because I'm, you can initiate a conflict if you're choosing the person over the issue. That's what I'm getting at there. Conflicts re re resolve when we, when we refuse the inclination to escalate. Every time somebody calls me with a marriage problem, I say, don't escalate this problem. Because what most of us do when a conflict comes at us is we, we throw bombs back at the person who threw a bomb at us. Then we escalate it. And what happens then, what's wrong then is, because listen, sometimes there is a conflict and it's a real deal and it needs to be dealt with, but you escalate it and it becomes about things it's not about. Escalation of conflict changes the subject. Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> So, so, so resolve when, they resolve when we refuse the inclination to escalate. Almost always. I listen, people call me, I say, listen, I sometimes tell people to pick a fight. Don't get me wrong. I've quite often told wives to go pick a fight with your husband. I've quite often told conflict-averse people, here's how you do it. Here's what you should say. Here's how it goes. But... But when a conflict has arisen, especially when there's been some discovery of some violation of trust, or if there's any kind of form of violence involved, then I say, de-escalate, can you de-escalate this? Can you de-escalate this? Can you keep yourself from escalating this? Because you've got a better chance when the emotions rest. And I don't know about you, but I know about me, and a lot of times I need a minute to get myself all right. Listen, if you're a person who you want to resolve things right now and you're married to a person that needs a minute, give them a minute. <laughs> you, you, you will regret the not giving them the minute. Conflicts resolve when we refuse the tyranny of our own opinions. I'm right, but I'm right, but I'm right. Yeah, you're cursed right. 
And you're cursing the whole deal by being right. Refuse the tyranny of your own opinions. For me, that means a lot of times, because listen, I got opinions. And they are. I'm like married to them. I love them. I love my opinions. Um, But I've found for me that oftentimes I I have to keep saying to the person, tell me what I don't see. Tell me what I don't understand. Tell me what I'm missing. Tell me where you think I'm wrong. Tell me where I'm wrong. In fact, don't even say you think. Just say, tell me where I'm wrong. Because you don't have to be afraid. Conflicts resolve when we refuse division in favor of peace. In other words, I can go have a conflict with somebody if I'm not trying to turn them into an enemy. But if I'm trying to turn them into an enemy, listen, if you want, some, if you want, to, if you want to tell somebody off, yeah, just forget about it. Just ignore them. Don't do conflict as a means of exit. Conflict is all, conflict engaged is always a means of coming closer. I notice the ironies of history, how, how combatants in war often become allies. Notice that, our, um, that America's greatest allies have often been our combatants. Anybody ever heard of England? Conflicts resolve when we refuse fear in favor of love. And listen, it is fear that is cast out by love. And wherever fear is, love doesn't flourish. So you got to go at what you're... Conflicts resolve when we refuse conquest in in favor of escape. Now, what I mean something subtle here, and once again, I had to spell my word. The people principle. Conflicts resolve when you give that other person a way out. Give them a way out. Give them a way out. Remember what temptation God says about temptation? He'll... We're okay. We, get, we escape temptation because he gives us a way of escape. Give people a way out. Be generous about this. Now, all this, if you, if, you, if you will adopt these principles, I'm telling you, you can do conflict. Have you ever tried this? Go see somebody and say, and say we have a conflict, but my goal is to get our relationship where it was once before or get our relationship better than it's ever been before. If you tell somebody up front that I'm in conflict with you, but I don't want to be, man, you talk about powerful. You talk about powerful. When I was in conflict with my Baptist church and I said, and I said to them, can we at least part with a kiss instead of a fist? And they gave me everything. It was unbelievable. It's so powerful when you say your goal is healing. Your goal is restoration. All right. People change aided by great communication. So let's talk about communication skills a little bit. And this is where I have, the, I have the least time. By the way, when I talk about communication skills, I'm not talking about relational communication skills uh, tonight. I, I do that another night. 
but I, but I am talking about, I'm, I'm talking about uh, like what I'm doing. What I'm doing. I'm talking about you, you being able to communicate great things to the world, to others in, 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 in evangelism and teaching and training. I'm talking about those kind of communication skills tonight. That's what I'm talking about. Um, um, the relational communication skills have a different aspect to them and we've talked about some of it already. So communicators are convinced they have something important to say. And, that, and that's why if you are communicating to a group, that, that's, that, that's number one. If you've got nothing to say, then you aren't a communicator to a group. And, and listen, I, I always, when it comes to preparing to talk, I always go, if this doesn't reach me, it ain't gonna reach them. And I go listen to great communicators and listen to great teachings and receive great teachings. I read some, I, I, the, the signal thing of preparation for me is do I have a burning heart? Did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us? So a great communicator put a burning heart inside of those to whom he communicated and that burning heart sent them out telling the story. Communicators care about what they're saying. If you don't care, they don't care. Every once in a while you'll get a, somebody who drones away at their communication. When I was young in ministry, I, used to, I, had a, I had a minister who taught us that personality, he had just had a thing about personality, that somehow the personality of the minister was somehow a, a hindrance to the gospel, and he taught us to suppress our personalities. And I'll never forget that I was Mount Pisgah Baptist Church, Highway 9 South of Upora, Mississippi, and I turn off on a gravel road, and you, and, and, you, and you go to the house of these church members, and I'm sitting down eating some chicken on Sunday morning, and the lady says, Preacher, we, we, we really love what you say to us, but you could pep it up a little bit. <laughs> so that, that turned out all right. What do you think? That turned out all right. So communicators carry a sense of urgency. I've already said it in other ways. Communicators create narratives that are compelling to others. That means go discover something. Listen, when we, if, by the way, if you missed the whole weekend, get hold of the Sunday night message of Malcolm. Malcolm said, this is the principle that I've been telling you all weekend. Then he told the story of Ruth and then he made the application. Oh my goodness. I've been teaching covenant all my life and I hated myself for about a few seconds after, <laughs> after he taught that because I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But he made the narrative compelling. And oh, by the way, uh, people are not convinced by arguments anymore. They're convinced by stories. They're convinced by uh, human encounters. This is why um, uh, the people on the left are converting us by telling us stories of people's pain. And the compassion in us 
wants to ameliorate the pain in people. And so we change our minds about principled issues because of the story we hear about pain. That's a powerful way of converting people. Arguments don't do it a lot of times. It's the story that does. You gotta learn to tell the story and you gotta learn to tell narratives that are compelling. That's why I love uh, like secular writers like, like Malcolm Gladwell. I like to read that guy because he tells, some, he tells it in a compelling way. Um, listen, listen, I've been listening to a number of secular writings and all of them are telling me stories in ways I haven't heard them. And what Malcolm did, he just took a story we all knew and we went, we didn't know that story because he wrapped it up in a way that was compelling. So the change principle, communication, the change principle, create hearing by sharing stories of faith and of overcomers. You, you heard the story of Ruth. You heard the story of Ruth's faith and you heard the story of her overcoming. Um, I don't have time. <laughs> Honor listeners by valuing their best interests and outcomes. In other words, what you're doing is not trying to make them be impressed with you, but you're trying to give them something that's gonna help their life. Honor your hearers, honor your listeners by valuing their interest, their best interest. Advance learning by knowing insights that are not common. The thing I did a couple of weeks ago where I, where I, uh, I, I dug in, whenever I've dug in lately about chaos and order and how chaos and order work and how, and how God is the one that comes and sets order and everywhere I go talking to people about chaos and order and how it works, they, they tune in, something they haven't heard before. When I started telling the story recently about, um, about how liberal, um, you can't value liberalism and social justice. You can't, you, you, can't, you can't say, no, no, you can't say that our goal for learning is, a, is a, a quest for truth and our goal for learning is social justice. That those two, when I said those two are opposite to one another, because most of our institutions of higher learning have swapped the quest for truth for social justice. And when I found an author who could articulate, hey, listen, those two are incompatible. It shocked me. And when I told you, it shocked you. Um, so insights that are not common. Never exaggerate claims that are easily disproven. The biggest mistake that, that Christian preachers make in my mind is overstating their claims. Whenever you overstate your claims, you've weakened your argument. I don't care who you are, if you overstate your claims, if you exaggerate your story, you've weakened your argument. Uh, let me tell you when I check out, just as me. Somebody will tell a story of healing and they'll tell it this way. This guy had cancer and we prayed for him and he was completely healed. And I go, you don't know that. And I check out immediately. I just check out. Say the truth. He felt better. Go see the, Jesus said, go see the priest. Go see the doctor. Get the report. Overstating your claims weakens your argument and turns you into somebody people don't trust. That makes you, that hurts y'all. I can tell, I can feel the pain in here for me saying that, but you'll be all right. The golden communicator's rule, boredom is hell. Don't take people there. (laughs) 
That's why I'm listening. I don't even mess around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna do things to get your attention if I lose your attention. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna run across the stage and act like a fool. Cause, cause don't bore people. It's torture. It's torture. Exhorting people is always more effective than shaming them. Wait just a second. Long term, that's true. Because frankly, shaming people gets big results quickly. But it makes people harmed more than it makes them healed. Exhorting them. We exhort one another to love and good deeds. We don't shame one another to love and good deeds. Ultimately, the person that fills you with shame, you will run from them. That's why God is saying to Adam, where'd you go? I didn't shame you. Who shamed you? The one who shamed you is the one who tempted you into sin.